We're in chapter 13. We're coming to the end of the sermon that Jesus preached from the first verse of chapter 12 to the ninth verse of chapter 13. We'll break for a couple weeks. We'll do something for Palm Sunday, Thursday, the Thursday evening communion service. Remember, that, that Thursday of Holy Week, we have a special service, and hopefully you all can be part of that. It'll be the first communion for those in the communicants class. Today is the last week. Next week is the makeup class. And then they'll get their very first communion experience on that Thursday night before Easter. So we're excited about that. So put that on your calendar as well. So this morning, we're, we're at the end, coming to the end of the sermon uh, that Jesus has preached. He's talked a little bit about the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, the parable of the rich fool, the witness of worry, treasure hunting, uh, the witness of watching, and from those to whom much is given, much is expected. He talked about how he divides. Uh, the Prince of Peace is a great divider. And today, it's a powerful message today, and it's, it's, it's coming to the close of his, of his sermon. It's called The Truth About Tragedy. I'm going to give you a quote in just a moment, but let me, let me make something clear right from the beginning. Every single culture has to deal with evil, pain, and suffering since the beginning of culture or they lose credibility. They have to come up with some kind of a response to it. Know this, that every religious worldview deals with evil, pain, and suffering at at some level. They all try to work through it. Only the secular worldview, humanism, does not. And that's the worldview that absolutely permeates our cultural context. In this culture in America, secularism is is the dominant view. And there are no resources in secularism for for evil, pain, and suffering. Their understanding of evil... When you have an imminent frame in which you live, imminent meaning here, this is all that exists. This world is all there is. There's nothing. There's nothing transcending this world. Charles Taylor, in his Secular Age book, talks of this imminent frame. That's where they live. So for them, evil, pain, and suffering is an interruption to your daily living. There can be no purpose. There can be no meaning. There can be no value. To it, there can be no resources to deal with it. And often you'll see secular humanists cry out to this unknown God when evil, pain, and suffering hits. We have... A worldview that makes sense out of the world. That's what a worldview does. A worldview is designed to make sense out of the reality of the world that we live in. We know there's a lot of bad things that go on in the world. How do we make sense of it? So Jesus is going to speak into it this morning in this passage. He's going to talk about the truth of tragedy. You may remember a book a long time ago. Rabbi, Rabbi Kushner wrote, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. Remember Dr. Kennedy reframing that. The question shouldn't be when bad things happen to good people. The question should be when good things happen to bad people. Jesus said no one is good except God. So the the prayer is that we would reshape our, our understanding of tragedy from a biblical perspective because we have resources. I'm not saying it's easy. The weight of tragedy and suffering can be unimaginable. And some of you have experienced that. But today we'll look at the truth of tragedy. 
I want you to see this quote. Shakespeare, you're, you're familiar with him, of course. Macbeth, you may remember in Macbeth, Act 4, Scene 3. Shakespeare understood profoundly the reality of tragedy in the world. This was spoken by Macduff, if you're familiar with that play. Take a look. Each new morn, new widows howl, new orphans cry. New sorrows strike heaven on the face. That's the truth. That's real. We don't deny the reality of evil, pain, and suffering as the Buddhist would. It's real. So how do we deal with it? Shakespeare was right. Each new morn, new widows howl and new orphans cry. And new sorrows strike heaven on the face. Hear now the word of God. Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. And may God add his rich blessing to his inspired and errant and fallible word. Let's pray together. Father, it's no accident we're here this morning, everyone, by divine appointment, which means you have something to speak into each heart. Father, we pray. And it is my earnest desire that everyone within the sound of my voice who is not already would come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Make this a word of salvation. Father, for many in storm winds that are blowing right now, make it a word of comfort and peace. And for those who are tired and weary and heavy laden, a word of rest. All things to all people. Give us ears to hear and minds to understand and hearts that beat for nothing smaller than the Lord Jesus Christ. Come, now fount of every blessing. Unclutter our minds and unburden our hearts that we might see Jesus and him only. And it's in Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said. Throughout the history of the, of, of, of the world, great religious teachers and philosophers have come up with explanations for the purpose of pain. Is there purpose in pain? Is there meaning in this madness that we deal with in this world? You have the only worldview that makes sense out of all of it. It doesn't make it easier to deal. It doesn't make it easier to deal with. We still have to deal with it, and some of it is unimaginably crushing. But we're able to see behind the veil and understand. What went wrong? The secular humanist has no understanding of what went wrong. If you crawled out of a bubbling cesspool of amino acids 10 billion years ago, how do you explain the wheels coming off the tracks? None of it makes sense. But you have a worldview that makes sense out of senseless, seemingly, suffering. Okay? Three headings. Number one, the reason in his audience they had a response, and it's typical to our response for many today, even in the church, their response. And then finally, his redemption. He's redeeming us through what? Suffering. 
That's been promised. Before we launch out, listen to this carefully. If you're familiar, and, and many of you are, with sharing Jesus, what, you're familiar with some of the objections that people make. Probably the number one objection today, and it's legitimate. This is an objection that comes often not from the, the blogging chat room hooligan, but from someone whose heart has been crushed under the weight of suffering. How can, how can you possibly tell me there's this good God in the face of all of this evil, pain, and suffering? That's a legitimate question. Three centuries before Jesus, the Greek philosopher Epicurus said it this way. Take a look at these words. This is legitimate. Is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he is not omnipotent. Is he able but not willing? Then he is malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Then whence cometh evil? Is he neither able nor willing? Then why call him God? So the argument that the secular humanist wants to advance to disprove the existence of God does the very opposite. There can be no God in the face of evil, pain, and suffering. How would you be able to determine what is evil and painful and what is suffering without having what? Some kind of moral standard that can only come from God. So it does exactly the opposite. It proves that God must exist in the face of evil. But there's mystery to it that we don't understand. How would you be able to categorize the difference between these two cultures? In one culture, they greet you when you show up. In another culture, they eat you. Which is right and which is wrong? You have no framework for it. Unless there's a moral frame. A standard that has been set. And you know in the depth of your heart, because you know what? No matter what you say you believe and don't, you know what? You know there are some things that are absolutely wrong. Absolutely wrong. And your heart cries out for justice. That didn't crawl out of a bubbling cesspool of amino acids 10 billion years ago. That came from God. And every single person is made in the image of God, and that heart cries out for justice. We're going to look at the truth of tragedy today. And I pray that this ministers to all of our hearts. Remember this. We all deal with tragedy. I deal with it on a, another memorial this weekend coming up. One of my callings as a pastor is to help prepare you for evil, pain, and suffering. To give you resources and tools. Now, what we're going to teach today isn't something that you would bring to somebody on, 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 on the day of the phone call that you get that something bad has happened. This is the preparation for those days. We need resources and tools as Christians to be able to deal with this and then be able to minister to those when we have opportunities to do that. So that's what we're going to see in this passage. What is the truth about tragedy? Ready? We're going to head out into some deep water, I promise you, and let our nets down for a catch. Number one, the reason for tragedy. Luke 13, 1, 2, and 4. Now, there were some present at the time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Pause. He asked the question, what's going on here? Seemingly, this is probably a Passover. 
Why are there some Galileans whose blood is mixed with the sacrifices? Why? Because at Passover, there could be, depending on how large the city would swell with those who would come on their pilgrimage for Passover, there could be a quarter of a million animals sacrificed for Passover. So the laity, at at some levels and in some areas, were allowed to make their own sacrifices. The, The priest couldn't do it all. So what's happened here? We have Pilate who has come and who has done what? He has murdered Galileans while they were doing what? What you're doing. They were worshiping. They were sacrificing to God. They were worshiping their God. And Pilate shows up and murders them. And their blood mingles now with the sacrifice. Jesus said, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners? And of course they did. We'll see that in a moment. Then all the other Galileans, because they suffered this way? Is that what you think? I tell you no. This comes under the heading. I'm just going to give you two very simple headings to classify evil. We're not going to get real deep because it's a sermon. 30 minutes. Moral evil. Take a look. What's moral evil? Murder, abuse, robbery, hatred. You know what comes under moral evil. You know where it is. It's everywhere. So this would be moral evil. This was, a, this was a sinful heart, pilot, one of the worst despots they had in Rome. And the stuff that he did is, is legendary. So here he murders some while they're in the midst of making sacrifices and the blood mingles. Moral evil. But we're not done with that. We've got to go on to the next category. Or how about in verse 4, the 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them? Do you think that they were more guilty? Why did the Tower fall on them? They're more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you no. What heading does this come under? This is a natural disaster. What natural disasters do we see? Earthquakes, tsunamis, and hurricanes, and famine. Now, let let me give you one more piece. Where moral evil exacerbates natural disaster and natural evil. Do you know the number one cause worldwide for famine has nothing to do with weather patterns? Nothing. It's the sinful hearts of those who are in charge of those regions where war breaks out and where there is argument and discontent over supplies of foods that arrive and how to distribute them. That's what exacerbates the problem with famine. It's the moral evil in the hearts of those who are ruling. So those are the two general categories where we can kind of put everything in it. All of these things that happen. So Jesus gives the two categories and he lays them out and he says, you think... Bad stuff is happening to bad people. That's what you think. Notice what he says. Do you think they were more sinful or more guilty? What is he presupposing? Everyone is guilty and sinful. And he never questions Pilate. He's making a deeper point. You're missing something that's quite important here. He's speaking to his disciples. You think that this stuff happens because of what it is they're doing. And you're protecting yourself because you're trying to behave. He says, it doesn't work this way. You have no idea when, when, when you will be called to account. Remember the end of last week's sermon when you're heading off to court? What was the court? The high court. Who was the judge? God. Settle your accounts before you get to him. It is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. There's no second chance. So, take a look at this. The reason for tragedy is what? 
sin, but don't show up to someone's house and tell them that. Don't do that. But that's the reason. But I'm going to show you the depth of it now. Ready? You have a tendency to look at that first gospel presentation in Genesis 3.15, the Proto-Evangelion. You look at that and you go, wow, this is a wonderful promise to us. Sometimes we have a tendency to miss what's in it at the very end. Take a look. And I will put enmity. God is speaking to the serpent. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, your seed and hers. No seed in the woman. Seed is who? Jesus. You will, he will crush your head. We have a tendency to stop there. Isn't that awesome news? What's at the bottom? Do you know what that means? Your sin causes your Savior to suffer. There's the promise of suffering right there from the beginning before there was any. He hasn't even cursed Adam and Eve yet or the ground. But he makes the promise that suffering is coming and coming where? At the deepest level to the Savior. We we don't even think of that. You think of all the heels going to be struck. you imagine? Think of what Jesus went through. Remember the sixth to the ninth hour? My God, my God. So here we see the very first sin is the cause of suffering. And our sin is the cause of our Savior's suffering. So there's the framework so that we understand what happened. Why do hurricanes blow across the land and devastate countless miles of construction, plants, trees, and lives are lost. Why? This is why. The creation broke when Adam and Eve turned from God. And in Romans 8, it tells us the creation groans for redemption. So all of that comes as a result of... So we, we, we receive that as believers and we know that, okay? Now we have to go deeper. We know what that gives us a framework for the worldview. Why is the world messed up? Sin messed the world up. Now we have to go deeper because now we have to deal with this at a heart level. Okay, ready? What's their response? Here's, here's the challenge. And it's a challenge for all of us. Luke, uh, Luke 13, 2 and 4. He says, Do you think they're worse sinners? What's his response? No, they're not. You think that they're more guilty? What is his response? No, they're not. What is their thought process? I'll give you three points to it. It's legalistic. It's self-justifying. And it's retribution theology. You know what that means? First of all, it's legalistic. They, they want to cause and affect relationship for everything. If you do this, that's going to happen to you. And if I don't do this, that won't happen to me. Self-justifying. I want to be able to put God in a box. And this retributive theology is real, real deep for them. This is just payback for stuff that we do. Every time you drive down the street, and there's that, it says payback for somebody. And don't we think like that sometimes? You ever been on the expressway? Somebody goes by you at 100 and you go, ha, huh, I bet I'll see you soon. Right, you're not hoping anything really bad, but at least a ticket, right? Blue lights, ha, 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 a little horn helm. Right, say blue right by and cut right in front of you. Come on, you feel good about that. I'm not alone. I get that horn. But now really bad stuff, okay, really bad. Let's, let's. Jesus says, no, what's wrong with you? 
Now, there's a framework for this, right? We go back to the Old Testament. Did God judge sin? Boom. Sure he did. How do you explain the floodwaters of Noah? You know that. The Red Sea that collapsed in on the Egyptian army that was pursuing them. Remember Miriam and her brother fussing about Moses? God judges them. I mean, it's there. But we have to be very careful that we don't have this, this overarching category that that's what, what, what causes all of it. You sin, this happened. So now we'll give you the classic, the classic passage in Scripture which should correct our retributive theology. John 9, 1 and 2. Notice what they say. They saw a man blind from birth. You've got to stop there and star that. From birth. So now listen. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? What was he, sinning in the womb? What was he doing? Now there's rabbinical teaching that says that the child could sin in the womb. So they need, why do they need to know? We're not blind. We didn't sin like that. I want to know who sinned. I want to be able to put God in a box and domesticate him. I don't want the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I want the God of my own creation. And I want to put him in a box. I want to be able to know how to deal with this God. So who sinned? Surely he's going to tell them who sinned. Verse 3. Neither. Oh, boy, there goes their theology. Neither this man nor his parents, but, oh, don't miss this, but this happens so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And what happens to him? He gets his sight back. God was at work. All those years, nobody saw God at work. They couldn't even consider God at work. And God shows up and he goes to work and the guy gets his sight back. It's all part of God's plan. Here's the challenge. When the finite mind, listen to this, when the finite mind claims infinite understanding, there can be nothing good that could come from, you, you know that? You know the beginning from the end? You're the Alpha and the Omega and you see all things? Shame on us. Not only do we have finite minds and finite vision, it's corrupted by sin. And we claim to know the infinite? And because we can't see anything good, it cannot exist. Jesus says, neither sinned. It's a result of sin, but not theirs. There's no blindness in the Garden of Eden before sin. That's a result of sin. It's a consequence of sin. But you want to be able to point to someone's personal sin so that you can protect yourself. It's your moralist. Self-justifying. <laughs> Let me give you the classic. These are th- I'm, going to, I'm, going to show, I'm going to give you the classic understanding of this kind of theology. But let me frame it first before you see these three quotes from Scripture. When you're called to some kind of situation that's bad, somebody's suffering, be like Job's friends for the first seven days. Show up and shut up. All was well until day eight. Oh, day eight. Messed the whole week up. 
seven days they sat and they gave Job the ministry of the presence. They just showed up. And Job was ministered to at a heart level. Then they opened their mouths and began to speak. And these were their words. Ready for this? And this is how we think. Brother Eliphaz, the Temanite, listen to his words, 4-7 in Job. Who being innocent has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? In other words, Job. Job, you lost your health, your wealth, and your children. Tell God you're sorry for what you did. Just confess it and get beyond it. Job says, thanks, you're helpful. Well, they're not done. Friend number two, Bildad, the Shuhite. Surely God does not reject one who is blameless or strengthen the hands of evildoers. None of this, none of this would have happened if you hadn't done what you did. Tell us what you did. They're not done. Got a third friend. Boy, these are really good friends. Zophar, the Naamanite. This is the this is this is the worst. Notice what he says. Job, know this. God has even forgotten some of your sin. Just confess some of it that he hasn't forgotten. We know how sinful you really just confess the little bit of it. And you'll get to the other side of why you lost everything and why we haven't. You understand what I'm saying? We haven't lost anything. Why? Because we're right with God. Is that right? Now, are, are, does sometimes stuff happen when we sin? Nod your heads. I'm going to give you three examples and three categories, then we have to move on. We've got to go quickly. Category number one. You sin, something happens. God can judge sin. What's a great example of that? There's the big ones in the Bible. I'm going to give you three names to start with J so you can remember them. Remember Jonah? God said go. Jonah said no. Three nights in a floating fertile hotel in the bottom of the ocean. See. What happened to Job? He was judged for what? His sin. Sin, sin was judged and he suffered because of his own personal. Does that happen? Nod your head. Yes, it does. But don't you be standing there with your friends and go, you just need to confess. Don't do that. We don't know. Because there's another category. How about the sin of another? Classic example. Another J name? Joseph. He suffered because of what? The sin of his brothers and false accusers in in Egypt. So we have those two categories that kind of make sense. Then we have a third one. Don't miss this. Mystery. Job's was a mystery. He didn't know. What did Job know? But in all that Job went through, he never sinned. What does it say? I had heard at the end, chapter 42, what does he say? I had heard about you, God, but now my eyes have seen you. And I repent in dust and ashes. He knew who he was and he deserved all of it. Because everything he had been given was a gift from God and God had the right to take it at any moment. 
That's the power of understanding the story of Job. He never knew. And he, he fussed with God. He cried out with God. He argued with God. He was angry with God. But it was always to God. He didn't complain to his miserable counselors. He went right to God. And God received all of that until he had enough. And then what did he say? Who is this who darkens my counsel? Where were you when I created all of this? That's the problem with us when we think there's no good reason. How would we possibly know? We see, it's like looking at life through a fence, a wooden fence with a little tiny hole. That's all we see. God sees the beginning from the end. And just because we can't see something good doesn't mean there isn't something good there. That's why we have to keep our eyes fixed on Christ. And I'm not saying it's easy. But it's the only hope we have when we go through suffering. So we suffer because of our own sin at times. We surely suffer because of the sins of others. And then there's mystery that we just don't. The secret things belong to God. Deuteronomy 29, 29. Okay? There's... Their, their retributive theology is no different than the Hindu karma. That, that, they, had a, they, had a, they had a Hindu worldview. The Hindu says what? Right? You know, what goes around... You said that, right? You just think, okay, you do this, it's going to happen. If you don't do this, this won't happen. And, and you have this box. You have this imminent frame. Nothing transcendent out here that you're, that's out of your control. You have an imminent frame that you are in control of. So the Hindu view is clear. You, you deserve that. It's from your past life. You're going to keep going through until you get it right. Now, what do we all deserve? For the ground to open up and swallow us right now, yes? Nod your heads. Everything you have is a gift. And the more you have, the more you're in debt to the one who's given it to you. But we don't look at life that way. We feel that we deserve. We deserve better than we have and more than we have. We deserve, especially in this cultural context. Okay, here's the key. The more sinful you are, here, here sums up their theology, the more God will make you suffer. Is that true? Aren't there really, really sinful people that are really doing fairly well? Right? By the standards of the world you look around, right? You read, read history. Man, guy lived a long time, devastated lots of lives. There was no immediate cause and effect. He did this and that didn't happen. Why? God's in control. I don't have an answer for that. So the more sinful you are, the more God will make you. It's not true. We have to be careful with that. Here's the key. Ready for this? Only when you understand. Listen to me carefully. Only when you understand what God has done for you will you ever be able to begin to understand what God is doing to you. If you don't get what God has done for you, then all of it will be some kind of punishment. It'll always be punitive. You will never be able to rise above the waves of challenge. 
and have them wash over you and conform you to the image of Christ. You'll, you'll find no purpose in pain, no meaning in suffering, nothing. But there has to be purpose in pain because the cross shows us that. Okay, you ready? Here's the final point. His redemption through tragedy. Don't miss this. We are redeemed through... What did Jesus promise? In this life, you will have many what? Troubles and tribulations. We have been promised this. So we know that redemption has to come through tragedy. So now, let's take a look. Three and five. Here's the two key verses, and they say the same thing. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. He says the same thing again in verse 5. What is he saying? You want to put a box around your life and you want to put God in it and you want to try to be in control. You have no idea when you will breathe your last. The parable of the rich fool said what? I want to build bigger barns instead of having a bigger heart. And what does God say? This very night your soul will be demanded. What is he saying to his disciples? You need to be right with God. What does the debt all men pay? Death. We're all dying at the rate of 60 minutes an hour. You have no idea when you will breathe your last. The promise is what? You will breathe your last. And then you will stand before the ultimate judge. And then you will answer. The only answer you really need is what? Just look over, right? There's, I'm with him. Eh. Why should I let you have it? I'm with him. That's all. It's all you need to know. I went through this whole mess, all this, but I'm with him. I trusted him a long, long time ago. I got nothing to claim. I've got no good to lay before. I'm just with him. He says you got to repent. Ready? The gift of repentance leads to the grace of redemption. Repentance is a gift. God gives the gift of repentance and faith. And then we repent. And then we believe. And it leads to what? The grace of redemption. Acts 14, 22. You ready? We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Oh. I'm going to ask you a question. How can suffering not slay Paul's significance? You ready for this? 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18. Watch this. Keep this question in mind. How does suffering not slay Paul's significance? Ready? For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. How? How is that possible? Because Paul, Paul found his significance where? In his Savior. His purpose wasn't in his preaching. His meaning wasn't in his ministry. All of it was in Christ. He found his meaning, purpose, and significance in the one thing that suffering could not take from him. Suffering will take everything from you that matters. Everything. Except Christ. If your purpose is in your paycheck, it will take that from you and you'll have no purpose. If your meaning is in your marriage, it'll take that from you and you'll have no meaning. Your significance is in your children. You will lose that and it will be gone. All of that goes. Jesus says you've got to rise above all of that. What did he say? Don't love others less. Love me more. 
Everything that you are about has to be anchored into me because it's the only thing that will survive suffering. The only relationship that you will never lose. Now, for believers, the relationships that you have, it's only a temporary loss. That's why with a believer who's going into glory, what's the final word that we say? Well, what's the final word we don't say? Goodbye. Why? There is no goodbye. We say, I'll see you soon. But there's still a break in that relationship. There is none. Suffering cannot touch the Savior. So when your identity and your purpose and your significance and your meaning is in your Savior, you are safe from every kind of suffering that will come after you in this life. That's how Paul could say that. That's the key. John Newton, remember him? Remember Amazing Grace? Late 1700s? Listen to these words. Because I've had people say to me, heaven is silent. The gates of heaven seem as brass to me, as Spurgeon would say. I'm not getting through. Newton said this. If we are not getting much out of going to God in prayer, know this, we will certainly get nothing out of staying away. Nothing. You think heaven is silent? Keep banging on the door. Because God is at work. When suffering... I'm not minimizing pain and suffering. I'm the last one to do that. Death almost weekly, somewhere, to someone that touches me. Certainly sickness, week after week after week. But we have to ask this question as believers. What weakness in me are these wounds calling me to identify? What does God want me to do with these wounds? Because God is conforming us to the image and likeness of Christ. And most of that will only happen in the furnace of affliction. Close. You believe this, right? God is sovereign. Check that off your list. God knows what he's doing. Check that off the list. So we could say this, couldn't we? To someone who's suffering, just trust God. Isn't that true? Isn't that fair? Listen to me carefully what I'm going to say next because I don't want you to come after me after the service and say, Pastor, or text me or send me an email. God is sovereign. God knows what he's doing. Just trust God. I don't, I don't say that. I can't say that. It's true. But it just seems shallow in that moment of unimaginable pain and suffering that people are going through. So here's what I say. I, I, don't, I don't know why. They ask the question, why? Why the evil pain and suffering? Why so much in the world? I don't know why. Because I don't tell them sin. I, I don't know why. But I know what the answer cannot be. It cannot be that Jesus doesn't love us. It cannot be. And the cross shows us that truth. I don't know why that happened. I don't know why God took that love. I don't know why. But I know what the answer cannot be. It cannot be that he doesn't love us. His life is our love. His death is our deliverance. 
His resurrection is our redemption. That's the truth. I'm going to give you a quote to close that is, if you know the story of this woman, it's powerful. In the book, 1,000 Gifts, and Voskamp, she was trying to make sense, the mother of six children, homeschooling all of her children. And she's trying to make sense. One of her, really her earliest memory in life was an unimaginable tragedy. On their family farm, her little two, 18-month-old sister on the farm was crushed by a truck. And that's her earliest memory in life. She was overwhelmed for years with grief and cried out to God for some way to make sense. And she wrote that book, which is profound. And, and these words, I think, will speak to your heart better than I can. Anne writes these words in 1,000 Gifts. God gave us Jesus. If God didn't withhold from us his very own son, will God withhold anything we need? If trust must be earned, hasn't God unequivocally earned our trust with the bark on the raw wounds, the thorns pressed into his brow, your name on his cracked lips? How will he not also graciously give us all things he deems best and right? He's already given us the incomprehensible. How do you deal with unimaginable suffering? That's the only way I know. Is to remember the bark that his wounds pressed against and the thorns that pressed into his brow. And that my name was on his cracked lips. That's the only hope. He has given us the incomprehensible. Has he been given to you? Right now it's a time of invitation with outstretched arms and nail-scarred hands. Jesus has come. Will you come to Christ? By grace through faith, will you come to Christ today? Jesus took your place on a cross. He took your nails and he took your thorns. He took the wrath of God and he took your death that you might have life. Come to Christ. Cry out, God be merciful to me a sinner. And today is a day of salvation for you. If you've never prayed, pray with me now. All believers, pray with me today because someone here by way of the internet right now is going to get saved. Pray with me. Father, right now just simply have Whatever hearts that have never been raised from death to life, who have never been transformed by the truths of the gospel, may they just simply pray this prayer right now in their own hearts. God, I heard the truth today. I know that everything is broken, including me, because of sin, and I cannot fix it.
But I see the way today. It was clearly presented that Christ is the way. Give me the gift of repentance and faith. I cry out to you. God be merciful to me the sinner. I transfer my trust from myself to you. I give you my entire life. Father, give them this confident assurance that nothing from this moment forward, having now trusted in Christ alone, will ever separate them from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And Father, for everyone else, some who are walking through unimaginable storm winds right now in this moment, wrap your loving arms tightly around us that we might feel your nail-scarred hands and be reminded of how truly loved we are. Because that is the only power that can help us get to the other side of evil, pain, and suffering. We thank you in Christ's name, amen.